Support for LAist comes from FX, presenting The Veil. Two women play a deadly game of truth and lies in this spy thriller starring Elizabeth Moss and Yumna Marwan. Emmy eligible in all limited series categories. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a wellness resort on 4,000 acres located 45 minutes from downtown San Diego. Established in 1940, Rancho La Puerta offers adult summer camp-like vacations. RanchoLaPuerta.com It's Air Talk on LA is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Finally, we get a break in the rain. I know some more is due to come up later today, but uh, just to get some sunshine and a break from the clouds, nice thing. And I loved coming in this morning and seeing the beautiful snow on the mountaintops of the San Gabriels. I know it'll be gone soon, but got to enjoy it while it's there. We begin with a look at uh, some very bad news for employees of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in La Cunada, Flint Ridge. As I said just a few minutes ago, approximately 530 employees, 40 contractors at the NASA-contracted lab are expected to be let go. Uh, The official word comes out today as employees have been told to stay home for the news. This represents about 8% of its workforce. And with us is LA science reporter Jacob Margolis, who's been writing about and following the story. Jacob, thanks so much for joining us. What's behind the layoffs? Yeah, you know what? Uh, back in the fall, it was announced that there would be cuts, uh, very likely if it was a proposed budget, cuts to the uh, Mars Sample Retrieval Program, the mission. that was supposed to bring, uh, you know, chunks of the red planet back to Earth uh, to be studied sometime, potentially around 2033. Um, it looks like it basically all comes down to budget. And so um, in the memo sent out yesterday by the director of JPL, uh, she said that, um essentially cuts it, it seems like a red like cuts across the board are likely to help balance things out so that for that program and others um, could continue and some of this obviously also has to do with the fact that congress has not secured a uh, fiscal year 24 budget you know it's been kicked down the road again and again and again the stopgap measures along the way and uh, you know it, I, I think it's down to march now when it could theoretically should be decided and so that has very real implications for people like those at JPL who are on missions. And it's, you know, they're on these missions that take decades to execute. And they're, you know, we're seeing right now, you could lose a lot of really important people on these missions because of dysfunction in Congress. I was reading that NASA instructed JPL to prepare for a, a cap on the Mars sample return program spending that would be just over a third of of what was allocated for the previous year. Do we know why beyond the Mars sample return mission that cuts would be going across the board uh, as a result of the cuts in the in the Mars program? Well, I guess you could either. Well, we're going to find out. I think this morning, my understanding is this morning, uh, people at JPL across the labs are being asked to work from home um, and will be notified through the morning. I have spoken with a couple of people that have been on that particular mission. And, um, you know, uh, I think we'll learn more in, in the coming hours as to who's being cut and where. Um, I, I think the idea from the memo, and I'm reading into the memo a bit, is that uh, – 
rather than completely gut one program that cuts will be made across the board to, to save missions to an extent. And, you know, we do have a robust um, space industry here, aerospace industry here in Los Angeles in the Southern California area. So uh, the likelihood seems to be that, you know, a lot of the people get picked up by the tech industry or the private space industry and probably have a place like SpaceX, which has already happened. All right. I uh, appreciate hearing from any Jet Propulsion Lab employees. Uh, if you think it's possible you would be affected by this, even if not, what this does to the work at JPL. We're at 866-893-5722. And I understand we don't know yet because the specific positions that are being cut um, aren't clear where they are, what programs they're in, although we certainly know the Mars program is going to take a heavy hit. But I'd be very interested to hear from you. If you are associated with JPL, your response to this, we're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. There's also this independent review of uh, the Mars sample return mission that has been conducted, which was critical of um, how it was being led. And that independent review also came back that there was zero probability that Mars sample return would make its 2028 launch date uh, and that even postponing to 2030 would require a big infusion of cash to make that possible. Uh, And Jacob, I I don't know how that negative review factors into this, but but certainly um, the costs of this program have ballooned considerably since it was initiated. Yeah, I mean, uh, what I can speak to in particular is is the program itself and what sort of what was planned out, what has been planned out with it, which is, and if people don't know, you know, uh, Perseverance, uh, rover Perseverance ended up in the Jezero crater, uh, has basically been sucking up samples using special drill, uh, sucking up samples of, of the Mars, you know, of the Mars uh, rocks and dust, sticking in sample tubes. I think 23-ish around there of like 38 potential samples that have been gathered so far. And the idea was to then send additional uh, spacecraft basically up to the Red Planet, uh, get those samples to go back out off the Red Planet and then launched back to Earth. And there are three different stages of this program. Um, you know, Perseverance was the first part. And then I believe there are two other stages in 23. 20- Seven and 28, I apologize if I'm getting some of those years a little off, but it was ultimately supposed to be completed by, or you're supposed to get the samples back by 33. And, you know, if you look back at the history of a lot of these really ambitious programs uh, throughout JPL's history, really going back to its inception, um, you know, I, I think a lot of these things are, you know, quote unquote, they've been moonshots. They've been big dreams that people have had that have actually resulted in pretty amazing missions that, you know, I mean, even just getting a Mars rover, like plopping down a Mars rover was a big deal. So what I will say is that, um, you know, some of them take an awfully long time, but a lot of them have delivered in really big ways for humanity. And this mission in particular is supposed to deliver on, hey, we think there's ancient microbial life that existed on this planet in in the Jezero crater, hopefully, and we can bring it back and, and confirm that. And that is kind of also the basis of, of a lot of potential future missions and maybe eventually people people actually going to Mars. And 
so uh, you know the hope i'm i'm obviously i sound hopeful in this kind of stuff because i think this exploration is really important for earth it's important for us here and you know pasadena and jpl and all that um and so i hope they do go forward with it as well as there are an awful lot of other very amazing missions that are being executed on right now. All right. Thank you, Jacob. We appreciate it. Jacob Margolis, LAS science reporter. Make sure that you check out his coverage throughout the day at LAS.com because once we have more details about what specific positions are being laid off, we'll have more sense of what the impact will be on the operations of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Again, yesterday, the announcement by director of the lab, Lori Leshen, that 530 employees of 40 contractors are expected to be laid off today, 8% of the lab's workforce. Yesterday, there was a big announcement in media. ESPN, Fox Sports, and Warner Discovery announced plans for a joint streaming service that would provide the sports holdings of those three entities in one place for streaming subscribers. This yet another step in the evolving cord cutting of America away from cable and satellite towards streaming services with us Wall Street Journal media and entertainment reporter Joe Flint. The journal, by the way, broke this story yesterday. Congratulations, Joe, on on uh, breaking this. Um, so share with us uh, what the timeline is. If they said when this service might be available. Hi, thanks for having me. The goal is to have this up and running by the fall, uh, ideally before the college football season starts because, uh, you know, there is such a huge uh, fan obsession with college football and all of these companies, uh, well, particularly Fox and ESPN, bring a lot of college football to the party. And this would bring presumably NBA and NHL games from TNT and TBS, uh, baseball playoffs that are on TBS, uh, Fox Sports, of course, with pro football, college football, Major League Baseball, ESPN with virtually every sport in the world, uh, minor and major. So th- this is a big deal. Um, but whenever you think of three huge media companies sharing something, it's like, you know, a lot could potentially go wrong. Yes, I wouldn't want to be the one tapped as a CEO for this venture <laughs> because you will have three bosses. And uh, that's a very tricky thing to navigate because right now all these companies are aligned in their goals and their rationales for doing this, which we can get into. But we know this media industry is ever-changing, and someone's priorities today will not be their priorities tomorrow. So it'll be interesting to see three years from now where this thing is at and whether someone's looking to get out or they're suddenly wanting to add more partners. You know, a lot of this, will we'll see how it plays out. And what are the implications for the carriage fees that cable and satellite providers pay? Because if now you're able to get the ESPN and Fox Sports channels and TNT and TBS sports on, on uh, a streaming service like this, um, then are the cable companies uh, going to be willing to pay as much to ESPN for its channels? Well, they certainly won't be happy about this. Naturally, these sorts of uh, platforms uh, potentially can lead to more cord cutting. The companies 
uh, are saying that this is a service really designed for people who have already cut the cord or never had the cord in the first place. Of course, that's what we would expect them to say. They yes. don't want to upset their Comcast or Spectrum. From the business side, though, uh, the you know the the rates that ESPN charges a cable operator to carry it, those rates cannot be lower on a streaming service. So there, you know, there's most favored nations clauses in all these deals. Now, so you might say, well, then how cheap can this thing be? But if you take away all the entertainment channels, we know we always hear about why do I have to pay for all these sports channels? They drive up the price of my cable bill. Well, conversely, there's probably a you know, percentage of sports fans like, why do I have to pay for Comedy Central and Nickelodeon and uh, and Disney Channel? I don't have kids. I just want my sports. So in theory, that the price will still be significantly less than the average cable bundle. One of the things still missing in this service for people who are real sports fans are the local agreements, their local teams, uh, those typically held by um, the Bally Sports Channels or uh, in the case of Los Angeles where the Dodgers and Lakers are, are both um, contracted through Spectrum. So if you want to see those two local teams, you're more constrained, particularly the Dodgers you'll only get if you're a Spectrum subscriber or Direct TV. So um, do you know if this is something that they're looking at, beefing this up? with regional sports for now for now no that's at least that's what they're saying officially you know they're happy with what they have and uh the calculation is that between these three companies you've got about 55 percent of all televised sports but to your you're correct i mean for local sports fans this isn't a solution really because Right. You still need those regional sports networks, which means keeping the bundle or going, quote unquote, over the top for those services. I know you can subscribe to the you know clippers out here uh, for, to watch it online. So, yeah, it, this certainly is not going to solve everything and especially on the on the local level. So uh, pricing is to be determined. Are, are you willing to venture a guess of where you think this will land, Joe? I would, I will venture a range and it'll be a high range, which will be pretty useless to your listeners then, but I might say somewhere between uh, 60 and, and 80. And if you factor in what you pay with cable bill and surcharges and everything, I mean, that's not including broadband, you know, your, your cable bill still might be like a hundred dollars just for your, your channels and your local station. So if you are looking to totally just cut the cord and have these 14 networks with a lot of sports on them, then there's an economic ad advantage to it. Uh, these uh, companies bid against each other for rights fees to sports. With them collaborating on a streaming service, does that change their leverage at all and uh, give them more leverage in negotiating with leagues? Well, they've been very careful to say this is not about forming a coalition to negotiate jointly. That's what we would expect them to say, of course, because if that were the case, that's where you potentially run into uh, maybe antitrust issues. Uh, but uh, they, they claim we're all still going to negotiate our own deals separately and we'll bring to the party whatever we get on our own. I mean, we'll see. I mean, the sports leagues are uh, not ones to be pushed around, obviously. So uh, I think 
that that would be tough for them to try to team up and do that because remember there's plenty of companies not in this so if you're the nba you can say well hey i'm going to negotiate with nbc cbs amazon or apple they're not in this you know so you know you're not going to muscle me so yeah i mean i i think it would be tough to uh to to use this uh, as a way to sort of drive a wedge in negotiations. Joe, thank you as always. Really appreciate you coming on to talk about this story that you broke yesterday. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Joe Flynn, media and entertainment reporter for The Wall Street Journal on the uh, coalition joining forces to offer a streaming service later this year, Fox, uh, Warner Discovery, and Disney's ESPN. It's Air Talk. On LA is 89.3. When we come back, we'll take a look at a new, fairly small scale study, but one that was quite telling about the nature of chronic pain. How much of it seems to be in our heads versus in our bodies? We'll find out what the study found when we come back in just one minute. Support for LAist comes from FX is What We Do in the Shadows. Follow the nightly exploits of vampire roommates Nandor, Laszlo, Nadja, and Colin Robinson as they navigate the modern world of Staten Island with their human familiar. Starring Kayvon Novak, Matt Berry, Natasha Dimitriou, Mark Prokish, Harvey Guillen, and Kristen Shaw. Emmy eligible in all comedy categories. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com FYC. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a health and wellness resort just 45 minutes from San Diego, recently voted a top international destination spa by readers of Travel and Leisure magazine. Summer retreat packages of three, four, or seven nights include hiking, water classes, mindfulness, spa therapies, and culinary adventures with farm-fresh ingredients. Learn more at RanchoLaPuerta.com. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us today. Hey, just a quick reminder, tickets are on sale for our 22nd annual Film Week Academy Awards preview. It's coming up on Sunday afternoon, March 3rd, exactly a week ahead of the Academy Awards to be handed out in Hollywood. I'll be in downtown Los Angeles with all 11 of our Film Week critics. We're on stage at the historic Orpheum Theater, downtown Los Angeles on Broadway, and we invite you to come out and to hear our critics weigh in on all the major categories. I'm in the process right now of choosing the clips we're going to show for all the Oscar-nominated Best Picture films, uh, Best Picture nominees. So we invite you to join us. Tickets are available at LAist dot com slash events. If you've not been to one of our Film Week shows, I guarantee you're going to have a good time. It's the critics at their best. They go back and forth and uh, can get uh, intense at times, but also very funny. They get their best lines off during the course of that show. So please join us at the Orpheum Theater, downtown Los Angeles, Sunday afternoon, March 3rd, 1 o'clock. Tickets available at LAist.com slash events. A new study published in the Journal of Pain reveals that for many people seeking pain treatment uh, and ostensibly for a physical condition, um, the determination of the study is that in most cases this was actually emanating from the brain 
not from the actual site that the patient thought was producing the pain. Joining us is Nathaniel Frank, whose piece I saw in the Los Angeles Times detailing this study. Uh, Nathaniel Frank's an author and historian. He's in the process of writing a book about the mind-body pain connection to be published by Mayo Clinic Press. And his recent op-ed in the Times was titled, The Pain in Your Back, It's Really a Pain in Your Brain. Nathaniel, thank you so much for being with us again on Air Talk. We appreciate it. It's good to be here. Thank you. Uh, you're someone who has suffered from chronic pain, I know, in, in your life. And uh, this is sometimes hard for people to hear because it seems like it's less real or perhaps the fault of the patient if they're not able in some way uh, to suppress the pain because it's not bodily caused. You know, when you saw this study, what was your response? Did it offend you at all as a chronic pain sufferer? Well, it didn't offend me, and I and I hope it doesn't offend um, too many people, but I understand why people sometimes have this sense that if people say pain is coming from the brain, that that suggests it's all in your head. Well, it's not all in your head, but it is coming from your head. Um, and I think what this study and a whole mountain of prior research uh, that continues to build is showing us is not necessarily that there's such different kinds of pain, although there are differences between chronic and acute pain we can discuss, but that all pain comes from the brain. And the, it, it, it's, the pain experience is generated through a whole variety of, of variables that the brain is taking into consideration. And that includes the physical part, but it also includes the brain's understanding of whether you're in danger or not. And for that, it looks at a whole bunch of factors uh, about your sense of safety and, and so on. And so this, this research builds on, uh, on, on earlier research that's really beginning to give us a new paradigm in pain and that's what I hope people will take um, from this from this article. We're talking with Nathaniel Frank, and also joining us is Dr. Howard Schubiner, who's clinical professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine and the lead author of the new study that we're talking about, looking at chronic neck and back pain. Dr. Schubiner, thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So this study looked at 222 consecutive pain patients at an orthopedic clinic in Louisiana. Everyone who showed up, and, and as long as they could complete a questionnaire, what were the findings of these 222 patients when you compared their reports of pain to what scans uh, of the sites uh, that the patient were citing? What did you find there? Yeah, um... The results are really remarkable, and they go counterintuitive against what most people would find, because if you have chronic neck or back pain and you go to a regular orthopedic or physiatry doctor, a regular primary care doctor, and they get an MRI, the MRI will be abnormal, because 97% of the people in the study had abnormal MRIs. But it turns out, research shows, and this is very well established, that most people have an MRI, even if they have no pain, so or have an abnormal MRI. So mild findings, degenerative disc disease, bulging discs, et cetera, on an MRI may not be the cause of the pain. And that's what we did in this study. Uh, we looked deeper at patients' histories and the characteristics of their pain. So in addition to having the MRI data, we talked to them at length. And the doctor who com uh, completed the study, Dr. Bill Lowry, found that 88% of them actually did not have a structural problem in the back to account for the pain. 
And we confirm that based on how the pain was. So if the pain comes and goes, shifts and moves, turns on and off, is triggered by innocuous stimulant, we have this whole set of criteria. That's what was the determining factor. And uh, how do we know if you're if you're looking at those abnormal uh, MRIs and you have a significant number of people who don't have pain associated from that? How do we know this isn't actually the opposite, that you've got a significant percentage of people that their brain isn't picking up pain, so to speak, that they're just not reactive? They're not getting the warnings that the body is sending them. Right, exactly. And the question is, how important are those signals? It turns out that most people have these abnormalities on their MRI without pain. So if your hair is getting gray, well, there's a physical change in your body, but it's a normal change. If your skin is wrinkling, there's a physical change in the body. But the brain isn't reacting to that because it interprets it as normal. And so... This is a similar thing that we're finding with back pain, and most people are unaware of that. If people get the wrong diagnosis, if they're told that their back pain is due to a severe structural problem when it's not, they can undergo a whole variety of medication treatments, injection treatments, even surgery that may be unnecessary and invasive and expensive and possibly even risky. And we have developed new treatments that are helping people reverse or eliminate their chronic pain without having any invasive treatments or medications. So this whole idea of what's the actual problem is, what's the diagnosis, is so critical in this emerging field of chronic pain. And millions of people are suffering, and their pain is real, as Nathaniel pointed out. It's not fake or imaginary. It's just we have to determine what the causes? We're talking with Dr. Howard Schubiner, clinical professor, Michigan State University College of Human Medicine, lead author of the study looking at chronic neck and back pain. Also with us, Nathaniel Frank, who's an author and historian, writing a book about mind-body pain. Uh, he recently wrote an op-ed in the L.A. Times, The Pain in Your Back, It's Really a Pain in Your Brain. I'd love to hear your questions for our guests about the study that was conducted in Louisiana at uh, an orthopedic clinic there. We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. That's 866-893-5722. Dr. Schubiner, how much of this relates to the, to the notion of a pain threshold? I think we all know people who have very high thresholds, things that would you know normally uh, bring, bring us down. That person just kind of uh, is able to slough off and, and move through their day. Do we understand what's at play in that? What we know, the emerging neuroscience of, is called predictive processing, which means that our brains literally create what we experience. For example, we don't actually see with our eyes. Light comes in our eyes, but our brains create those images. And we know that because you can see in your dreams when your eyes are closed. And we know that people can have injuries and have no pain at all. And we know that people can have very real pain in the absence of injuries, especially when undergoing a difficult situation. If you have a stressful day at work, you may have a headache. If you have to speak on the radio, your stomach may be tied in knots like mine is right now a little <laughs> bit, right? 
And so, <laughs> and so we know these things happen all the time. And it turns out the brain has a danger alarm mechanism and it turns on and it turns off. And so the brain is in charge of whether we actually experience pain or not in any given situation. And that's what we found in this study because a lot of times people might have pain in certain situations but not have pain in other situations. And if your arm is broken, the pain doesn't turn on and off, right? A structural pain doesn't act like that. So that's how we confirmed. And we're super confident about our results that 88% of the people in the study did not have a structural problem in their back that was actually causing their very real pain. And and these were chronic pain sufferers, correct? Uh, or were some correct. of these just to... Okay. Uh, were correct. They were all yeah. chronic pain. Absolutely. <laughs> We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722, where you can email us your questions for our guest, Dr. Howard Schubiner of Michigan State University College of Human Medicine, or Nathaniel Frank, who wrote the piece you might have seen on the op-ed pages of the Los Angeles Times, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Dr. Schubiner, one of the things that we commonly hear about is someone suffers an accident and there's an actual uh, structural injury that's suffered. And uh, over time, as, as that structural injury gets better, the pain continues. And what what's going on in the brain that causes the lingering of the pain even after you've got some significant improvement on the injury suffered? That is such a great question. And we see this all the time. Because normally when you have an injury, the injury will heal and the pain will get better day by day, week by week. Sometimes it may take a couple, a few days or even a few weeks for the pain to go away. But in chronic pain sufferers, what frequently happens is the pain will actually increase over time. The pain will spread to different areas of the body over, over time. The pain will change in its characteristics. And there's some really amazing fMRI studies, functional MRI studies of the brain done with people with chronic pain after an injury. And what they find is that in the early stages of an injury, the parts of the brain that light up are the somatosensory areas, the parts of the brain that are closely connected to the body. But over time, the fMRI shows that the parts of the brain that are lighting up in chronic pain is the emotional areas of the brain. So what happens is if you have an injury, the injury will heal because all injuries heal. But sometimes the brain will continue to send these pain signals and it can create a spiraling process especially when people continue to feel that they're in danger because the research shows that uh, a physical injury causes certain parts of the brain to light up and an emotional injury causes similar parts of the brain to light up so that an emotional injury can cause real pain. So when you add a physical injury plus an emotional injury, what's going on? You have a car accident and the person who hit you is, is um, you know, not apologetic. Uh, it's causing a lot of money. Your, your family's affected, your life's affected, your job's affected, and these things can spiral and the, and the pain can get better, even though the injury, uh, pain can get worse, I'm sorry, 
even though the injury is healed. Well, and I think there's often fear that it, that um, that comes along with the injury. I mean, I think for myself, around 20 years ago, I had a back injury, kept me off work for a week, and the pain was quite intense. And and my fear was, oh my gosh, is this something I'm now going to have for the rest of my life? Because it was so intensely painful. So it raised my anxiety along with the actual physical pain in my back I was experiencing. I had that anxiety as well and had to work to try and bring that back. Thankfully, I recovered and had no lingering pain from it once I once my body recovered. But um, what do you recommend for us when we're trying, you know, when our when our mind has that fear reaction, like, oh my gosh, everything's changed forever for me. Exactly. And then anxiety can make the pain worse. And what and that's why this article is so important because if you if you end up uh, going to a doctor and get an MRI of your back and you get these mild normal abnormalities, so to speak, then the doctor says, oh, maybe you'll be in pain forever. These, your back looks like the back of an 80-year-old. You know, this is really bad. Then that actually piles on top of this, makes more anxiety, more fear, which we've shown can actually make pain worse. So the most important thing is understanding this process, understanding that the brain can cause pain, that anxiety can make it worse. And when someone finds themselves in that situation, there's a bunch of resources that Nathaniel um, has and has um, uh, is working as a writer to to educate the public about um, how they can begin to take stock and calm their brain and realize that their injury is going to heal, <laughs> they are going to get better, and that there's techniques that they can use to calm their brain or rewire their brain, so to speak. We'll talk about some of those techniques when we continue. We're talking about pain, how it's experienced by the brain, the signals the brain sends uh, when it perceives itself under threat, uh, whether there's an actual structural physical reason to produce pain or not. We're talking with Howard Schubiner. Dr. Schubiner is clinical professor, Michigan State University College of Human Medicine, lead author on the study that we're discussing, and Nathaniel Frank, author of the LA Times op-ed, The Pain in Your Back, Really a Pain in Your Brain. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking about chronic pain, how much of it is produced by an actual physical injury, a specific location in the body that's producing the pain, versus signals being sent from your brain that you are in pain. Of course, the implications are very different on what sorts of treatment that you adopt. Let me uh, bring into the conversation Carla in Torrance. I understand, Carla, that you're with a pain management program at Kaiser. Please uh, share your thoughts on this. Yes, I've been in the program for a couple of years now, and I have um, had been uh, diagnosed with necrotic um, hip joints. And I've had, I recently had one hip replaced, but the, I'm in the program that tries to do exactly what Dr. Schubiner has been talking about, is to, you know, train your brain not to, you know, panic with the pain or to to downplay the pain it hasn't worked for me um except for the they there's a therapist there's a med specialist that 
um, they don't want to use opioids, and there's a physical therapist. Um, it's helped me with, as you said, the, the panic, <laughs> panic of the pain. But um, the med specialist talked about um, the study saying that maybe I shouldn't even be feeling the pain that they could train my brain. It hasn't worked. And of course, the doctors, surgeons always want to just operate. So I'm kind of fearing the second um, surgery thinking, maybe I really shouldn't be feeling all this pain. So it's, um, it's kind of a scary place to be where, once again, the surgeons are not really part of this pain management program. They just want to go in there and yeah, fix yeah. things by major surgery. Carla, I appreciate the question. Nathaniel Frank, you want to respond to that? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm sorry you're going through that because it sounds horrible and scary. And we've talked a lot about fear here. And Larry, you asked that question about, well, you know, might people who aren't feeling pain uh, but have these scary looking scans worry that their brain isn't picking up pain that it ought to be picking up. Um, that's more fear, right? And this is really an epidemic of fear as much as anything else. Now, of course, you have to go to an MD and make sure, as, as Howard describes with these di diagnostic models, that you don't have something um, truly dangerous and life-threatening that needs immediate medical attention. But what, once that's been ruled out, um, there are all of these resources online now, and I can mention a few of them, but there's so many, and it's a wonderful global community of people who can help you um, understand that, you know, others have gone through similar experiences and had similar symptoms and syndromes and have over time um, figured out ways to feel more safe and to move their nervous systems from a state of heightened anxiety and fight or flight into what they call rest or digest and do that, as Howard said, often without, you know, medication or surgery. Uh, sometimes people want or need medication for the short term uh, or for the acute part of the pain. But there are so many resources. I would also say it can take time. For some people, this happens quickly when they learn about the pain education. And because that itself helps shift their nervous system into a sense of greater safety and less panic, as we've been talking about. But for others, uh, particularly those who may have had real adversity or trauma when they're young, um, it, it can take a long time to rewire your your brain. I recently came upon this great YouTube video others may have seen um, where some engineers tried to, um, they rewired a bike so that you have to uh, ride it backwards. So when you go to the right, it goes to the left and vice versa. And it took this guy, you know, eight months of trying every day for five minutes to learn it. But his three-year-old was able to master it in two weeks, right? Because he didn't have a lifetime of, of the neural grooves, the pain, the, the, the pathways in the case of the bike. Uh, that that made this automated. So it can take time, and I would encourage you to both look at resources online and to be patient and persistent with this approach before you do something that's that's um, you know that could be uh, that that's less conservative. And and among other uh, resources, Howard has a great one: unlearnyourpain.com. Uh, I think it is, um, and you can go to tamethebeast.org. There's there's many out there that can bring you into a community of of information and support. Uh, Mark in Marina Del Rey uh, emailed to ask, could this tie into how alternative medicine like acupuncture provides pain relief for some people? Uh, is this a placebo effect? Nathaniel? Well, absolutely. The Our knowledge of the placebo and how it works um, plays a, a, an important role in our understanding of the fact that the brain 
is really the predominant um, governor of when we feel pain. There are studies now, not just of placebo um, treatments in, in medication working, you know, sugar pill working as well as uh, actual medication, but placebo surgeries, sham surgeries, there's even sham acupuncture. It can seem tough to, to do that, but they have found a way to, to basically fool people into thinking they're getting acupuncture when they're not. And very often the placebo treatment works just as well, if not better. Well, what would make someone's pain feel better um, when they're not actually getting any physical intervention? It's the belief that they have been made better, that they have been made well. And so mind-body pain itself is not a placebo effect. It is the reality of understanding, oh, we're not actually in danger. Our bodies are not broken. We are safe. And, and then sometimes the longer process around that to make you feel emotionally safe. So it's not a placebo, but there is a tie in there uh, with what we know about placebo, which is that the brain and our understanding of, of safety and danger um, plays such a critical role in, in the pain experience. Mm. It makes me wonder from an evolutionary standpoint, um, this sort of fear response when we suffer a physical injury, um, you know, when you're thinking about uh, early humans, that they had so many other things that they're having to deal with with survival. Maybe they're not dwelling on the pain, and it has much more of a real-world connection between threat and vulnerability than what in our much more protected world we experience now. I don't know, Nathaniel, is this another one of those artifacts in our evolution that served us well but, but doesn't given the lack of physical threats comparatively we face today? Absolutely. There's so, so much about evolutionary theory that, that tracks here and makes sense for why uh, pain would be a threat response. And Howard mentioned research from functional MRIs that even show that the area of the brain that processes physical pain is the same as the area that, that processes emotional distress. And in particular, um, studies are finding social exclusion and rejection. And the theory there is that as uh, humans evolved to become more and more cooperative, it became central to survival that we be part of an in-group. Um, and so if we experience instances of rejection, which many or most of us do at some point in youth, um, that is animating the, the very same um, areas, regions of the brain that uh, govern physical pain because it's that important from the evolutionary perspective to warn us, uh-oh, we're in danger if we're excluded from the group and we have to take steps to to get back into the group. So there's an evolutionary theory here that really helps explain what the observational research um, says about the importance of you know, pain being a threat response uh, and the overlap that that has with emotional pain um, is very strong. We're talking with historian and writer Nathaniel Frank. He's working on a book about mind-body pain to be published by Mayo Clinic Press. He wrote the L.A. Times op-ed, The Pain in Your Back. It's really a pain in your brain. And with us as well, clinical professor, Michigan State University College of Human Medicine, Dr. Howard Schubiner. He's lead author of the study uh, that looked at more than 200 patients at an orthopedic clinic, comparing their reports of pain with what was 
seen in scans and uh, finding that in the overwhelming majority of cases, there was not a physical cause for the pain that they were experiencing. Uh, and uh, Dr. Shubin also, uh, Shubin, or excuse me, citing research that um, that shows that you know very often when you look at the scans, the orthopedic scans of, of people who don't experience pain versus those that do experience chronic pain, there's often not a big difference there. We welcome your questions at 866-893-5722, or you can email, as many do, uh, and I'll share some of those comments when we come back. ATcomments at LAS.com. Please include your location and first name. Back in a minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. We're talking about chronic pain. Jennifer in Silver Lake emailed us. I had pain in my hip, was doing physical therapy that wasn't helping. I read a short book about Dr. Sarno's mind-body connection. Just the knowledge of that helped the pain go away and not turn. Quay in Pasadena emailed as a physician of 40 years. I don't see what's so revelatory about the study. All pain is ultimately experienced in the brain, and we already know that sometimes if you get a spine x-ray for back pain, a structural defect uh, find, found might not be the cause of the pain at all. The brain calls the shots. Uh, Annie in Long Beach emailed, I'm going to the pain clinic today to discuss next steps after an MRI. I have chronic nerve pain in my left leg, ankle, and foot. Should my pain doctor be aware of this study? Can I discuss it with her today? Is she going to think I'm self-diagnosing? Dr. Schubiner, your response. Yeah, there's so many great questions there. First of all, in response to the earlier caller who was having necrotic necrosis in her hip, um, not... All pain is generated in the brain. All pain is real. And many pain, many pains do come from physical injury in the body. And that certainly may be the case with the first caller that we had today. And if you have an ongoing physical issue, medical treatment is required. And pain management can be helpful. What we're talking about is that is making the distinction between pain that is truly caused by a physical ailment, like a necrotic hip, for example, or severe osteoarthritis or severe nerve injury, versus people who have pain in the absence of those physical conditions. In the absence of those physical conditions, and as one of the callers talked about Dr. Sarno's book, Dr. Sarno is one of my teachers, of course, in that case, we are hoping that we can actually dramatically reduce or eliminate people's pain. And the doctor who, who wrote in said, this isn't all revolutionary. He's right. Uh, this, these data that we're talking about have been known for 40 years. But the fact is that most doctors are really not aware of it. So the, the, the woman who's going, it was a woman who's going to see her doctor. Yeah, today. Should this doctor be aware of the study? The answer is yes. It's, it's good to, to talk with their doctors and make sure that they understand that we're educated and we understand maybe more about pain than, than they may uh, recognize. And we want to take an active role in our healing. And so the question that you have to ask is, is there objective evidence that's causing this pain? If someone's having nerve pain, you want to be able to ask the doctor, well, are my reflexes abnormal? Is the muscle strength abnormal? Are the tests really abnormal? Or do we know that the pain is there, but we don't actually know the reason for it? And when people are going to different doctors and getting different diagnoses, 
and not getting the, you know, it's not clear that there's a, a, a pathologic identifiable condition. In those situations, you want to be active and begin to look for people, as Nathaniel was talking about earlier, people like us in our broad network who can help try to figure it out. Patricia in Hacienda Heights said, I've had fibromyalgia since I was a little girl. My legs and, and feet hurt badly all the time my whole life, but there was nothing uh, found in scans structurally wrong. Uh, also, I had stomach upset. It turns out that a lot of childhood trauma was connected to that. Talking helps. That's Patricia in Hacienda Heights. Dr. Schubiner, um, at what point should someone do that exploration of, of uh, traumatic events or other factors that might be expressing itself in the perception of pain? Yeah, this, we feel for people like Patricia, you know, because pain for a long, long time is devastating and debilitating. And when the doctors don't have an answer, fibromyalgia is a good example of a disorder where the pain is real and often severe, and there's no physical injury to account for. So that's the perfect time to begin looking at the types of therapies that we offer. And the one major type of therapy we offer is called pain reprocessing therapy, which helps people to calm and soothe their brain and rewire the brain's neural circuits to dramatically reduce or turn off pain. And the other major therapeutic uh, um, intervention that we offer is called emotional awareness and expression therapy. And that is designed to help people deal with the underlying emotions that may be triggering the pain. And these can often relate to traumatic events that are happening in their lives now or a few years ago or all the way back to their childhood. Do, do, do we see any sort of association between uh, social isolation, loneliness, and chronic pain? And, of course, that's a chicken and the egg question because people might end right. up isolating themselves because they experience chronic pain. But, but has that been looked at, Dr. Schubiner? Absolutely. There's no question uh, that a whole variety of threats, and Nathaniel was talking about threats, is danger signal in the brain. And we are social animals. And being isolated and being alone certainly can result from chronic pain, but it can also result in chronic pain. Uh, you know, when you're not needed anymore, uh, when, when, you know, you're feeling that people don't care about you, uh, and when you're feeling um, in conflictual relationships with folks, which can then lead to more isolation, of course, all those things can activate the danger alarm mechanism. And the danger alarm mechanism can cause pain, but it can also cause anxiety or fatigue or insomnia or a whole variety of sensations because what we always say is the brain doesn't speak English to you. <laughs> it doesn't say, hey, by the way, you need to do this. It gives you a sensation, a message, an alarm, like a smoke alarm. And that smoke alarm could be headache pain, stomach pain, pelvic pain, back pain. Uh, could be nerve-like pain, or it could be uh, fatigue or anxiety. Yeah. I mean, the thing I find daunting in all this is you saying, 
how long it, it might take to go through this process of retraining the brain. Just You gave the example of the YouTube reverse bicycle and how long it took an adult to, to learn to ride that versus a child who, who didn't have the deeper neural grooves, as you, as you put it. And uh, so obviously not an easy fix, but important information here. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Nathaniel Frank, author of the recent op-ed piece, The Pain in Your Back, It's Really a Pain in your brain and Dr. Howard Schubiner, Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. We've been talking about the new study that he led out of Louisiana. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Support for LAist comes from FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Callista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. Emmy eligible in all limited series categories. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com FYC. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a wellness resort just 45 minutes from downtown San Diego. Three, four, and seven-night retreat packages include fitness classes, hiking, live music, mindfulness, and culinary adventures featuring fruits and veggies straight off the vine. Special rates and offers are available for summer stays and first-time guests. Savor summer at Rancho La Puerta. RanchoLaPuerta.com It's Air Talk on LA is 89.3. I'm Larry Mansell. Great to have you with us. Coming up later this hour, actor, writer, director Zach Woods will be with us. His new Peacock streaming series is a satire of public radio and its listeners. So we're all in this together. In the Know is the title of it. And Lauren uh, Caspian, the uh, the star of the series, voiced by Woods, as series is animated, uh, is uh, said to be the third most popular host in uh, public radio. So we'll talk with him about the series that comes up later this hour on Air Talk. You might recall last week we talked about violence associated with the illicit cannabis grow operations that are throughout Southern California. This stemming out of the multiple homicide with bodies that were found in the high desert a few weeks ago, and what the San Bernardino Sheriff's uh, Department reported about the nature of those killings, that it was centered around illicit cannabis grow operations. But we're going to be talking today about the brick-and-mortar retail side of illicit cannabis, because it's, of course, made it extremely difficult for licensed operators to compete in that space when uh, an illegal operator is open close to where you're doing Doing business and their prices are lower because they don't have all the the regulations and uh, the kinds of uh, testing and the like that goes on with a, a licensed operator uh, that enables them to undercut on price and makes for an unfair competition. Joining us to talk about that challenge is someone who knows this firsthand, Virgil Grant, a frequent guest with us on Air Talk. He owns California Cannabis, a licensed cannabis dispensary. Virgil has locations in South Los Angeles, Hollywood, and Boyle Heights. He also has a cultivation operation in Northern California as well. Virgil, good to have you back with us on Air Talk. Larry, thank you for having me this morning. 
So let's talk about the kind of competition that you and other licensed operators face. How prevalent are illicit retail operators here in Southern California? Uh, very prevalent, uh, Larry. They, um, you know, they're surrounding us um, in so many different areas and throughout um, Southern California, mainly Los Angeles, um, South LA, the Valley. Uh, you know, uh, us operators, we all are surrounded by uh, unlicensed cannabis facilities uh, that are operating. So it makes operation for us very difficult because people have it in their mind that uh, they can go there and get more product for a cheaper price. Uh, in some cases, that is true. Uh, and in some cases, it's not. It's uh, But it's uh, out there in the atmosphere. And so it's just going to take a huge push of education to uh, try to reel that back in. In addition to the competitive challenge that poses for, for you and your fellow uh, licensed operators, what about some of the safety concerns? I mean, we're talking about uh, what goes on with, with you know, non-payment of workers in grow operations that are illicit, uh, exploitation, violence that can result from that. Have you seen anything similar with illicit retail? Absolutely. Uh, say about maybe two to two and a half, three years ago uh, on 82nd, 83rd and Western, uh, there was a uh, illicit shop there. A uh, young kid was working there uh, in college, uh, putting himself through school. Um, and, uh, you know, he saw either saw something or knew something uh, that he wasn't supposed to know. And uh, he then came up missing, uh, was later found in a shallow grave in Barstow. Um, and the, uh, it pointed back to the owner. Uh, they tried to uh, wipe the, uh, the, DV, the DVR, which uh, was the recorder, clean, but the uh, police were able to recover the video and saw them uh, taking the kid out of there. Uh, so, um, you know, it's, it's just unfortunate uh, that that does exist. Uh, there are a couple of times where there were shootings uh, involved in a few locations uh, where shots were fired. Maybe two people got into a dispute um, and shots were fired. A couple of people were hit. Uh, it's just things like that that go on. There was another shot uh, about maybe four years ago on Crenshaw and 110th uh, where the security guard got shot and killed um, at that uh, unlicensed illegal dispensary. Um, so yes, there's a lot of uh, unfortunate things that go on in those shops. There's uh, workers that aren't being paid fairly, treated fairly, uh, work long hours. Um, there's just a lot of things uh, because they are not regulated. Um, you know, it's just uh, the wild, wild west. They, you know, operate how they see fit or how they feel. Well, and, and Virgil, when you report or someone on your staff reports an unlicensed operator in, in the area where you're doing legal business, what's the response? What's the degree of enforcement? Um, unfortunately, uh, it starts at the top. And the top being the uh, 
uh, district attorney's office, the city attorney's office uh, that is willing to prosecute and enforce. Uh, so when you talk to like law enforcement and say, hey, you know, what are you guys doing about this? They, you know, they say, well, we're bringing these cases up and you know, a lot of them aren't being prosecuted. And so it makes our job even difficult. So there has to be uh, a, a connection between uh, this illicit market, the community, law enforcement, and the city attorney's office willing to take these cases to uh, court and prosecute on them. Now, you know, there's always a uh, twofold when I speak about prosecution because of my history. Um, but in this situation, you know, I have to say everybody has had opportunity to enter into the license market. Um, each one of us had an opportunity to fill out that application and become licensed. So the fact that the city is, uh, to say the city is not giving licenses uh, would not be a good excuse on why people are just opening up illicit, I mean, uh, unlicensed shops. Um, but the lack of enforcement um, that has come along with the city of Los Angeles and, and law enforcement, it just makes it uh, more of a, I guess you would say, more desirable to open up an illicit shop and easier than it is to open up a licensed and regulated shop. Now, you mentioned your history, uh, Virgil, we should just mention, I know we've said this previously when you've been on, but you had a medical cannabis operation that was raided, gosh, 15 years ago or something. And, and uh, how much time did you do for the operation of that space? So I, I did six years um, for uh, owning and operating legal and licensed medical marijuana facilities uh, back in 2000, it was eight or nine. Um, so yes, I had six licensed operations and I was rated. So for me, um, it, it, it's kind of a, a, a kick in the, uh, in the seat, in the pants when I was prosecuted for owning licensed shops and here we have all of these unlicensed shops, uh, and no one's being prosecuted for that. Have Have you ever considered seeing uh, the difficulty of competing and doing it legally? Have, have you ever regretted that and, and um, instead wondered, gosh, why don't I just do this on the illicit market? I mean, we all probably have taken that thought. Uh, but once I uh, entered into the legal market, um, for me, there was no turning back. Yes, it's super frustrating um, and disappointing that, you know, me going through all the channels and just going through everything that I went through in my history um, to become a legal and licensed operator and then to watch all of the unlicensed operators, cultivators, manufacturers, distributors, everything uh, operate around me with uh, impunity, you know, with no prosecution, no you know, uh, enforcement of any sort, it just, um, yeah, super disappointing. Mm -hmm. So yes, we've all taken that thought, um, uh, about, you know, why did we go legal? Why did we even, 
uh, push for legalization if this is what legalization is truly going to look like. Virgil Grant is the owner of California Cannabis, licensed cannabis dispensary location, South Los Angeles, Hollywood, and Boyle Heights. Also joining us is the author of Cannabis Policy in the Era of Legalization and researcher and lecturer on drug and criminal justice policy at UCLA, Brad Thomas Rowe. Brad, thank you very much for coming in and joining us today. Um, what's the answer here to allowing the licensed dispensaries, licensed retail, to be able to operate uh, fairly on a level playing field? Yeah, thanks for uh, for having me, Larry. And um, I, I think that's that's the key word is fairness. Uh, we we're, we're we're really looking at something that, uh, in its most innocent version, is a food truck pulling up in front of a restaurant and serving the same food. And the restaurant kind of going, hey, I, I'm paying my taxes, I'm paying my license, I'm getting inspected, and uh, these guys are getting off scot-free. We do have uh, a lot of unlicensed operators in the city. Some of them are retail, there are a lot more non-retail, and that's the same across the state. Some of this is because we had a market starting in 1996 with compassionate care, and a lot of people were in business for a good 20 years, almost completely unregulated. And Virgil was just talking about his experiences. Um, there was heavy-handed enforcement, and then there was no enforcement and no regulation and no guidance. And I think the, the answer can be found in a few different ways. We're trying to open up the front door to let more people in, and the city's doing a fairly decent job at uh, at getting licenses out there, but it's slow in the coming. And well, and how many the... people are going to want to do it? <laughs> it's like, yeah, we'll give you a license to that... to not be able to compete with the illicit market. Right, yeah, exactly. So the profit margins have, have gone away, and a lot of the folks that came in on this sort of green rush mentality early on, uh, the squeamish have gone away, and uh, folks like Virgil and other people um, have said, we're going to stick it out and, and we're going to make this happen. But they do need to have some fairness. Um, and they these other folks that are that are operating unlicensed um, um, facilities, they're handling their disputes extrajudicially. Extra they're, they're using, uh, they have to have weapons. Uh, we have federal prohibitions, so there's a lot of cash in these facilities. Um, that's not the kind of neighbors that you want um, for your businesses. And so... Uh, the way to straighten this out is through contacting the, the complaint portal. Uh, that's going to go through to the Department of Cannabis Regulation. They're going to determine who is legal and who is not. Um, then if indeed it is uh, an unlicensed operator, they're going to pass that on to LAPD. Um, and in that situation, uh, that's going to go to the gangs and narcotics unit. Well, uh, cannabis is not as high as some of the other drugs that they're concerned about right now. Yeah, so with fentanyl, it, you're going to make a choice about going after illicit cannabis or after someone dealing fentanyl? Right, right. So um, public health concerns, public safety concerns. On the public health side, we're concerned about um, untested, unregulated products, um, certainly concentrated in certain areas. And I think Virgil referenced this earlier. Uh, there's a higher concentration of unlicensed shops in, uh, in certain areas like South uh, Los Angeles. And on the flip side, if you're going to start enforcing in those areas, uh, we want to make sure that enforcement is both effective in putting these guys out of business, but also that it's equitable to, to the neighborhoods. And the people who are working in these shops are, are locals. So when you go in and you're serving a warrant, uh, you've got to pull people out of there. They get fingerprinted. They get taken down to the station. And the last thing that we want, we I just, you know, no one's got an appetite for heavy-handed drug enforcement. We don't we don't want to return to the battle days of the war on drugs. Yeah, um, well, I don't think anyone's arguing that people working, just employees of, an, uh, you know, an unlicensed shop should be hauled off and imprisoned for that. Right. So, um, 
And that's one of the things we have to be really careful about is cannabis arrests drove uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the arrest numbers through the war on drugs, but they didn't drive a lot of the number of days behind bars. So usually what happens is people will be released, they'll be back out there, they can be working. Um, and a lot of these people decide, hey, that's too much hassle, I don't want to go back and work at this place again. But we do have some of these persistent uh, unlicensed operators who are sort of doing this whack-a-mole thing where they'll get shut down in one place and open up down the block. And I just wondered, the the illicit market is still so big in California, if this is a futile effort. I mean, is it, is it, it can you really enforce the law um, with the number of, of people that are in that space illicitly, is this even doable? Or do we need to come up with a whole other different approach? Well, it's a great question. And, and, and let's just break it down. Um, we, have, uh, we have a lot of folks who have been operating for 20 years, lead time on uh, before we had Prop 64, licensed adult use cannabis here um, in the state and in the, in, the, in the city of Los Angeles. Um, a lot of those operations decided to jump in and then said, after they saw the taxes and the regulation and the high cost of business and the difficult real estate, said, enough, I'm out, I'm going back out. Virgil spoke to that as well. Um, A lot of them said, I'm going to do it. And some of them just said, I'm going to go off and do something else. We have small-time dealers, the guy who's selling out of their living room, right? We're not super concerned about that guy. What we are concerned about are the people who are bringing in public safety problems, we don't want people with guns. We don't want people getting shot. We don't want people getting caught into difficult situations like that. So we want to avoid them. But we also have to address something which is perhaps a larger part of this unlicensed market, which is you have licensed operators who are sending product out the back door. Uh, this is the gray market activity that's ending up either you know coming in the side door of unlicensed or licensed shops or it's going to New York or Chicago or Austin, Texas, or wherever it's going. So um, at last measurement, our unlicensed uh, market was about uh, two to three times the size of our licensed market. Now, do we know exactly where all this product is going? It's not going to California consumers. Um, and, you know, we've done the math. We've done some of these measures. We're an measure- exporter. We're, we're, a, we're, a, we're a net exporter. And actually, speaking of that, um, one of the uh, signs that you really made it in uh, Monterey or in Tijuana or in some of the larger Mexican cities if you're getting good California edibles. So we have sort of a reverse. Uh, yeah. We have exportation of uh, California cannabis products going going into Mexico. And the number, the amount of, uh, of cannabis that's coming in uh, from drug trafficking organizations is, is way, way down from, from where it was decades we're, ago. We're talking with Brad Thomas Rowe, author of Cannabis Policy in the Era of Legalization, UCLA researcher and lecturer as well. Brad, uh, there's also something cultural here, too, isn't there? And that is, you mentioned people who for years have been getting their cannabis from someone, you know, maybe friend of a friend or even the shop that's, you know, been uh, alternately open and closed and and they know the people there. And there's kind of an anti-establishment thing. I, I suspect that if speakeasies were allowed to operate where there was unregulated alcohol, they'd have a substantial market because of the of the draw of the illicit, the cool factor, the anti-establishmentism of it. And how much of that is at play when it comes to cannabis? Well, there are a couple of issues to unpack there. Uh, first of all, consumption lounges are something that Los Angeles doesn't offer right now. Uh, they're looking to open up that license class, but we do have it in West Hollywood. We have it in some other areas that are close by, um, and that would offer up what a lot of people were voting for, which was the opportunity to consume cannabis. If you're a renter, 
you can't consume legally in your premise if your landlord doesn't want you to. You can't do it in your car. You can't do it in a hotel. You can't do it in a rental car. You can't do it People in public do, spaces. People do, of course. But, <laughs> right. but Not yeah, legally, you right? can't, quote unquote. Right, right. So you're, you're not supposed to. But culturally, uh, you bring up a good point, and New Frontier just released a really, uh, really interesting uh, piece of research on this. And my colleague, Dr. Amanda Ryman, um, they found that a lot of these heavy cannabis smokers, the flower smokers, are sticking with their original sources. They don't want to come into this sort of, you know, Mac store fancy looking place and buy their yeah. cannabis. Uh, they're getting it cheaper, and they don't necessarily even really care about the the THC content or the the, the the quality of the product. They know the people they've been buying it from. They're happy to continue doing that, and it feels a little bit like a sellout in, in order to do that. And you're getting back to this sort of the culture clash that happened in the 60s with the Back to the Land movement and a lot of people who fought for medical cannabis rights for, you know, original our, our buyers clubs for HIV patients and other people who are suffering uh, who needed medical cannabis going back you know, 30, 40 years. Brad, thank you so much for coming in and talking about this. We appreciate it very much. Pleasure. Virgil, as always, thank you for joining us and sharing your firsthand experience. Virgil Grant, the owner of California Cannabis with licensed dispensaries in South L.A., Hollywood, and Boyle Heights. Brad Thomas Rowe, lectures on drug and criminal justice policy at UCLA. He's the author of Cannabis Policy in the Era of Legalization. He does research for California's Department of Cannabis Control and also conducts studies for cities like L.A. and Sacramento on how to respond to the large unlicensed market. It's Air Talk on L.A. at 89.3. Coming up, we'll talk about a recently arrived product which delivers uh, oral nicotine, and it's being championed on social media. We'll talk about Zinn and uh, how it's become part of a whole cultural trend. We'll be back in just a minute. Support for LAist comes from FX is what we do in the shadows. Follow the nightly exploits of vampire roommates Nandor, Laszlo, Nadja, and Colin Robinson as they navigate the modern world of Staten Island with their human familiar. Starring Kayvon Novak, Matt Berry, Natasha Dimitriou, Mark Prokish, Harvey Guillen, and Kristen Shaw. Emmy eligible in all comedy categories. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com FYC. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a wellness resort just 45 minutes from downtown San Diego. Three, four, and seven-night retreat packages include fitness classes, hiking, live music, mindfulness, and culinary adventures featuring fruits and veggies straight off the vine. Special rates and offers are available for summer stays and first-time guests. Savor summer at Rancho La Puerta. RanchoLaPuerta.com The oral nicotine pouch known as Zin sits between the lips and the teeth, just like some other tobacco products uh, that have been very popular. But there's no tobacco in Zin, spelled Z-Y-N, but it is nicotine, and it comes with a variety of different flavors. Zinfluencers, as they're known, have recently popularized the product. Uh, they laud it as a mild stimulant. It's also caught the attention of lawmakers, with Chuck Schumer referring to it as a pouch packed with problems. So what is the story with Zin? Joining us from Bloomberg News is reporter Priya Anand, uh, Priya, thank you so much for being with us. First of all, just describe the product. How does Zen work? 
Yeah, Zen is a tiny bag of nicotine that fits under the lip, and it's become the latest performance-enhancing drug in certain corners of the corporate world, even. And folks have told me that the reason, one of the many reasons that they enjoy using it is because it's discreet enough that it can sort of fit in your mouth while you're doing something else. I interviewed someone who said he was at the gym um, and he had a Zen in his mouth while I was speaking with me. And that if you're in a client meeting, it could be in your mouth and no one would be the wiser or be aware of it. It wouldn't be sort of intruding on anything. Um, and that it's culturally accepted in many, in many uh, corporate corners. And how has this become a political issue over Zen? It has become a big political issue over the last couple of weeks. Um, since Senator Chuck Schumer uh, called for federal action to crack down on Zinn, he said he was warning parents that he believes, um, in his words, nicotine pouches set their sights on young kids, teenagers, and even lower, and then use social media to hook them, he said. Um, so he's concerned that folks who are young uh, can get involved in using Zen and nicotine pouches and then develop this kind of habit. Now, in response, we've seen we've seen a lot of response. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, she said on Twitter, she posted, or X, I should call it, formerly known as Twitter, she posted, this calls for a Zinsurrection, and this is what she said. She said, the same Democrats that want to legalize all drugs and have ripped open our border, flooding our country with fentanyl, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, want to ban Zinn. Uh, then you saw Representative Richard Hudson, another Republican, say Big Brother Schumer doesn't want us to chew or smoke. Now he's against an alternative that's helped many quit, come and take it, uh, with a photo of someone holding a can of Zinn. They're sold in these little round cans. If you didn't know what it was and you saw it, you know, on a table or in a trash can, you might assume that it could be mints or gum or something like that if you weren't really aware of the Zen trend. Now, Philip Morris, which owns Zen, said that, and you know, said to me for our story that we published about this topic a couple of weeks ago, said our marketing is directed for legal aged adults 21 plus who already use nicotine products and deserve better smoke free alternatives to cigarettes. And that's sort of what the conversation is around, right? This is considered. Um, a smoke-free alternative to cigarettes. Uh, you know, I think the audience knows the perils of smoking. I don't need to go through the yeah. perils of smoking yeah. and the risks of smoking here. But at the same time, it seems there are lots of folks who are using Zen. You know, I, I spoke with some who who wondered whether everyone who's a Zen user and aficionado actually was a smoker. And that's a question I think we we might not have the answer to at this point. Yeah, I'm no, not sure it, if there's enough research right this now. This reminds me a bit of the whole thing over vaping and concerns about kids uh, and, and the trendiness around vaping with minors and the different flavors uh, in the solutions and all that stuff. It, yeah, are, are there parallels with that, Priya? Senator Schumer certainly seems to think so. I mean, from his comments, it appears he's he's very worried about whether kids are going to get involved in something like this. And there aren't many memes out there about this. Um, and TikTok is TikTok is flooded with posts wow. about Zen. Um, there's been some reporting elsewhere about um, you know how high schoolers are interested in this product, but that's not my own personal reporting, so I can't speak to that too okay. much. Um, but clearly there's concern at minimum 
the way there was concern around vaping. We're talking with Priya Anand, who is reporter at Bloomberg News. Also with us is Jonathan Folds, professor of public health sciences at Penn State College of Medicine. He studies tobacco products and smoking cessation. Again, a reminder, this is not a tobacco product, but it is a nicotine product. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Folds, for being with us. Um, your th- your thoughts about uh, how Zen is, is being marketed? Well, I actually think that most of the fuss isn't caused by the marketing by the company itself. It's by it's by people influencers online. Uh, I actually think it was a mistake for uh, Chuck Schumer to 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 raise the profile of the product by by making a fuss about it, because the reality is that the latest data we have suggests that less than two percent of high school students have tried this product. Uh, in the last 30 days, you know, that's 2023 data. So that's actually a, a low level. It's actually less than 2%. Um, so it's not yet being very widely used by young people. Um, you know, smokeless tobacco uh, isn't isn't particularly widely used either. The, the rates of use have, have actually gone down. But, you know, when Chuck Sch- Schumer spoke about it, he, he raised his profile. Suddenly yeah. there's lots more articles. Uh, I think we have to be aware of the fact that this product, there's no tobacco in it. Uh, it delivers similar amounts of nicotine to other smokeless tobacco products, uh, uh, except it has no tobacco. So it's a, it's a, it's a low-harm product compared to cigarettes, uh, much less harmful, and could have potential for helping smokers to switch away from tobacco cigarettes. Well, and also for someone who likes um, to use uh, smokeless tobacco and and likes the kind of hit that you get, you know, from the oral delivery of it in the soft tissue there, this would give them an alternative without um, the carcinogen of tobacco. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. Um, it, it's, it's made, you know, this particular product that you're talking about is, is made by the same company that produces General Snus. And that's a, a smokeless tobacco product in a pouch that has already got a modified risk designation from the Food and Drug Administration, uh, meaning that it's allowed to make a claim that if you switch to it rather than smoking cigarettes, you're at much lower risk of numerous diseases. Um, so this is, if anything, probably even slightly less risky than, the, than that product, uh, which is already regarded as relatively low risk. Um, but, I mean, I, I, as was previously mentioned, it's illegal to sell these products to people under 21. They're not allowed to make claims about smoking cessation. They're not smoking cessation products, but they are much less harmful than than cigarettes, for example. All right. Uh, We're talking with Jonathan Folds, Professor Folds, Professor of Public Health Sciences at Penn State College of Medicine. He studies tobacco products and smoking cessation. We're talking about the oral nicotine pouch uh, sits right between uh, the teeth and the gum uh, uh, or gum and the lip, rather, and uh, uh, delivers nicotine uh, typically uh, with a flavored pouch as well. We're short on time, but I just wanted to ask you, Professor Folds, where's the FDA with this? Do you do you anticipate they're going to weigh in on the product soon? Well, these these major companies, including the, the maker of Zen, uh, submitted their application uh, to, to FDA about three years ago. 
Uh, unfortunately, between now and then, if they get hit with millions of e-cig applications and they've had their hands filled with that. But I suspect that we'll we'll get a, a decision from FDA in, in the near future. There has to be because it's really too long for a company to wait for a decision. Right now, it doesn't actually have an authorization to market, okay. but they're allowed to stay on the market until FDA weighs in. So I hope we, we get a decision from FDA soon. All right. Thank you so much, Jonathan Folds, Penn State College of Medicine, Priya Anand of Bloomberg News, writing about Zin, the nicotine-flavored patch. It's Air Talk on LA's 89.3. Coming up, Zach Woods, the co-creator, the showrunner, and the voice of the lead character in the satire of public radio, uh, which is in the know, streaming on Peacock. We'll talk with Zach Woods in just 90 seconds. Support for LAist comes from FX's Feud, Capote vs. the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Callista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. Emmy eligible in all limited series categories. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com FYC. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a health resort with 84 years of wellness experience providing summer vacations centered on mindfulness and well-being. Activities include sunrise hikes, water classes, yoga, and spa therapies, all set in a backdrop of a dreamy summer sky. A six-acre organic garden provides fresh fruits and vegetables daily. Learn more at RanchoLaPuerta.com. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. The new Peacock streaming comedy In the Know is set in the world of local public radio, specifically an interview program hosted by NPR's third most popular host, Lauren Caspian. He's well-meaning, full of himself, and a stop-motion puppet. So, too, are his co-workers, each embodying a type that might be somewhat familiar to those of us working in this world. In the Know was co-created by Zach Woods, who runs the series with Brandon Gardner. Zach also voices the series star. Zach's well-known for human roles on Silicon Valley, also for The Office. Zach Woods, good to have you with us on Air Talk. Public radio is ripe for parody. I'm glad someone's <laughs> finally done it. Larry, thank you for having me on. As I mentioned, you're... I listen to you constantly, and you're lucky that this is a remote interview. Otherwise, I'd be throwing my underwear onto the stage <laughs> where I assume you conduct your interviews from. Of course. Uh, very funny. Well, let's let's start first with the idea for In the Know. How did you, Brandon and Mike Judge, come together and, and settle on this idea of a public radio workplace? I think I'm just generally interested in people. I find people really fascinating for the most part. And so I worked with Mike Judge on uh, a TV show called Silicon Valley. And he noticed um, that I would often sort of default to interviewing people in conversation and asking them a lot of questions. And also that there is a kind of undeniable public radio um, essence that seems to waft around where I am, uh, just in terms of my physical body type, my references, um, my anti my non-confrontational personality and i think he thought that the it would be good to combine those things into a show and then also brandon gardner and i who was another one of the co-creators of the show would talk a lot about our own kind of 
um, inexcusable <laughs> liberal hypocrisy. And there was a day when I was in Larchmont and I saw this house that was like a $4 million house probably. And in the front yard, there was a sign that said defund the police. And then next to that sign was another smaller sign that said ADT home security and <laughs> armed guards. Going with that, and yeah. I thought that was so funny to be like defund the police, but also we have armed guards that patrol the neighborhood 24 hours and protect our palace. And then I, uh, you know, I went to some coffee shop and led my ridiculous privileged life and felt sanctimonious while being essentially the same person as whoever lives in that house. <laughs> and so I thought, well, it would be good to have a show that is a receptacle for all of my liberal self-loathing. <laughs> We're talking with Zach Woods, co-creator of and the starring voice in In the Know set in the world of of public radio. How did you land on Lawrence, his persona and his his affect and his extreme lack of self-awareness? <laughs> Well, we talked a lot about, you know, in the first day in the writer's room, we all talked about how the characters were similar to us, what we felt most identified with from each of the characters, um, because we had a kind of brief description of each of the characters before we hired any writers. And I think one thing that felt really important to us was rooting all of the kind of obnoxious virtue signaling and intellectual peacocking and all of that in a core insecurity and loneliness. There's one moment in the series where someone finds a tape recorder that has Lauren's first interview and it's with his father. <laughs> and he asks his father, why did mommy leave? And his father says, Lauren, put on your coat, we're late for school. And Lauren just goes, you're pivoting, you're pivoting. <laughs> and it just hopefully is clear from that that Lauren was a lonely kid who felt abandoned by his mother. And I think feels like he has to kind of be dazzling in order to be worth anybody's time. Uh, and we also talked about for him, interviews are this kind of scrumptious banquet and a jam session and a tantric love making session all rolled into one that for him, it's this kind of sensual um, experience, except he's not paying any attention to the actual other person or what they're saying. Um, he's the kind of, he, he's like a lover where at the end he thinks you've had the most romantic night of your life and your ribs are sore because he was leaning on them and he, he wouldn't listen to you when you said to stop. Well, and I love um, that because, because Zach, that, that comes into play with his coworkers too, where he's, he's clearly oblivious to them as people aside from just serving whatever he needs of them in the moment. So it's not just the guests he's totally oblivious to, but but generally throughout his life. In fact, it's hard to imagine him in a relationship. <laughs> yeah. I pity his girlfriend, also named Lauren, who bears an uncanny resemblance to him. He only dates women who are slightly more physically imposing versions of himself. And he likes, he doesn't, uh, he, he likes to be treated like a little bag of sand and thrown around <laughs> by them. But I was going to say, I think the other thing is that, that interests me about Lauren and a lot of the characters in the show is that I think people often mistake what is most appealing about them. I think people are often bad judges of what's appealing about themselves, where they'll think it's their car or their money or their opinions or their education that makes them lovable. When usually what makes a person lovable is something much mushier and much less kind of merit-based and more just in, intrinsic to who they are. But I think Lauren has like a terminal case of feeling like he has to have a hot take. He has to know the most up-to-date term. He has to be 
the most kind of iconoclastic or no one will want to spend any time with him. And as a result, nobody wants to spend any time with him. We're talking with Zach Woods, the starring voice of and co-creator showrunner of In the Know, uh, the Peacock streaming series. All six episodes are out on Peacock, uh, the show set in the world of public radio, stop-motion animation. We'll get into the animation of it just a little bit later. Zach, how long did it take you to find Lauren's voice? (laughs) Well, I'm an avid NPR listener. I also listen to The Daily, Ezra Klein, and there's this sort of collection of vocal I guess they're affectations or maybe they're just shared quirks. But we talked about when we were talking about promoting the show, we were like, what if we made an Instagram filter that gave you, when, when you posted a video on Instagram, it was like an NPR Instagram filter, which gave everyone kind of a bulbous frontal cortex inserted random pregnant pauses into whatever you were saying, because it feels like there's this kind of over intellectual um, almost appearance, and then this vocal thing, which is, uh, yeah, partly it's just kind of random pauses, but also it's this attitude of like intellectual puckishness, a kind of naughtiness, like where it, where the test of an idea isn't actually whether or not it's true, but whether it's provocative, you know. And, and I think that kind of way of talking, where it's it, where it's about kind of tickling people's intellects as opposed to getting to the truth of a thing always drives me bananas. And and so I wanted to try to embody that as best I could. It, you, you did it perfectly. I love it. <laughs> We're talking with Zach Woods of In the Know. Other characters on the series include the co-executive producer Barb, uh, voiced by J. Smith Cameron, the researcher Fabian, Caitlin Riley voices her, the engineer Carl, Carl Tart, uh, the college intern Chase, Charlie Bushnell uh, is the voice, and my favorite, film critic Sandy with Mike Judge. Th- that's a character that you created several years ago, is that right? Mike Judge, years ago, just oh, as like, Judge. I think uh, as a lark, he was one of the co-creators of the show, he did a little animation, which he posted online, of this guy who is a kind of prototypical film nerd who just starts saying, I like filmic films that are shot on film and are shot through film, film, film. And he just keeps saying film and film and film again and again, where he, he just descends into incoherence. And uh, we always thought that that was a funny character. It's like probably like an eight second animation. So we tried to sort of adapt that to Sandy, who is this kind of burnout ex, he's not exactly a hippie. He's someone who's been beaten up by some of the most, he's, he's, he's proud that he used to live up here with Jim Morrison, who used to beat him up. And um, Ken Kesey showed him a copy of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when it was still called Untitled Mental Hospital Comedy when they were both living in the Chelsea Hotel together. He's one of these guys who is sort of proximate to all of these cultural moments and is an odd combination of libertarianism and kind of hippieism and strange crust punk stowaway culture. I love it. That that hits it right there, all those adjectives. We're going to continue our conversation with Zach Woods. He's the co-creator, co-showrunner, and the vocal star of In the Know, set in the world of public radio. Uh, the character that Zach, uh, Zach voices is Lawrence Caspian, the host of a local public radio show he's billed as the third most popular uh, host in public radio. We'll continue our conversation with Zach and talk about the human guests on the show. Cause- 
actually interviews real public figures. We'll find out how those are conducted when we come back in one minute. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking about the new Peacock streaming series, In the Know, set in the world of local public radio and starring Lawrence Caspian. Lauren Caspian is the third most popular host in public radio. Uh, there's a lot of, of satire of public radio and uh, the whole culture that surrounds public broadcasting generally. Let's listen to an example in this clip from the series. Oh, I also wanted to let everyone know that that homeless gentleman is still in the bathroom. Uh, Barb. Huh? That is hate speech. He is an unhoused person. Actually, the preferred term is person who is currently without housing. No, I don't think so. Are you sure? Yes. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm really very empathetic to the man's situation. I volunteer at a homeless shelter. Uh, but... No, you volunteer at an unhoused shelter. A shelter for persons currently without housing. Well, it just feels very clunky. Oh, I'm sorry. Is it too inconvenient to treat vulnerable populations with respect? How dare you? I was using the term Inuit back in the 90s. I've been spelling women with a Y since before I could spell my name. Either way. Until he leaves, everyone on the floor will have to use the Starbucks down the street. That's just an example of the humor in In the Know, Zach Woods, co-creator, co-showrunner, and the starring voice as Lauren Caspian in the series joining us. Zach, uh, that's just such a great example. Now, we haven't had the same conversation in the same way, but of the kinds of things that take up a tremendous amount of time in the public broadcasting world and do get debated uh, somewhat similarly. I mean, I... Look, I think language actually really matters and the lexicon that you use is consequential. But I notice in my own life, this thing can happen where a kind of preoccupation with the glossary takes precedence over actual meaningful action. And so it becomes this kind of semantic virtue signaling thing. And it's almost like a filibuster. It allows you to kind of dicker back and forth about the the language while never actually having to confront your own inaction. And I feel like this is something I've been guilty of a million times where my professed ideology in no way matches my credit card statements or my calendar or any of that stuff. And I think the irony in this scene is that Barb volunteers at a shelter for homeless people, but because she's describing them as homeless people, she's the one who is being vilified. <laughs> I, yeah. And uh, that I feel like I've seen versions of that in my own life. I also, I appreciate it in this series, and I, I know it's supposed to be just funny, but Fabian's character, who is the most strident of the language enforcers and has, you know, the particularly correct things that she thinks uh, people need to think and need to do, that you see how that comes out of that character's deep sense of being judged, and not to get too heavy here, but there is an emotional through line in the character where you see this is coming from. And I thought that was really good because she could have just been a caricature and and it just been done straight comedy, but you also see that that's a character who is in pain. Ah, I'm so glad you said that. That really means the world to me because that was really important to us. We didn't want to just create, like... Rush Limbaugh's idea of a liberal woman in her 20s or 30s. You know, we didn't want to just create some sort of um, liberal pincushion to to put 
put our barbs into, you know? And I think for, for Fabian, she's someone who has a lot of kind of outlandish or, or performative moral stances, but she's also someone who's in a lot of pain and who people are constantly dismissing and, and being kind of, uh, contemptuous of. And one of my favorite stories in the series is she does a pre-interview with a cage fighter named Jorge Masvidal, who's a real mixed martial artist who, you know, knocks people unconscious for a living. And he's in his real life, a hardcore Republican. And they just seem like the most unlikely duo to ever make a connection. But through their conversation, they discover they have a mutual uh, empathy for each other and each other's suffering and they have a mutual curiosity and respect even though there's massive ideological spasms between them and it's this kind of sweet little almost like before sunrise or before sunset one of those julie w ethan hogg yeah, movies with yeah. fabian and this cage fighter and then later you find out that she's um she's really loves her family but feels that she can't spend time with them because she feels like it flies in the face of her kind of identity as she's described it to herself and uh, you know as a uh, I don't know I think it's all very complicated and I I have a lot of empathy for the Fabians of the world and I sometimes am a Fabian of the world so I'm so glad you felt that way that really means a lot yeah to me. well I think she's she's the, the character and I know she's stop motion animation but the character is is um someone who has felt clearly isolated and judged but then in in meeting the emotional needs of that by judging other people has then further isolated herself and it's just it's one of those kind of cruel ironies that that we so often see uh, in the in the world. I want to ask you though cuz you mentioned about the human gaze and the example of uh, the mixed martial artists with with Fabian. You have a number of uh, terrific guests who uh join the program Mike Tyson uh is is one of the the human uh guests Nora Jones who's terrific. Uh, Ken Burns uh speaking of public <laughs> broadcasting, Hugh Laurie who's very funny. Is any of that scripted or did you ask the humans being interviewed by Lauren to to just treat it like it was a real interview? In every instance, we asked the humans just to treat it like a real interview and improvised, with the exception of that Jorge Masvidal story, because that was more of a sort of scripted narrative. Although even in that case, he improvised a lot of stuff. He started talking about how he had this dream where he was murdering dolphins because they were trying to make him join a gang. But then he woke up and he felt terrible because he would never murder a dolphin. And that was all from Jorge. But but that story is largely scripted. Everything else is completely done like a real interview. We would research the guests. We would write questions in advance. Uh, but the actual conversation, they would just be looking at a picture of the puppet. They would never see me. And I would just ask them questions and they would respond in real time. Um, and it was really thrilling. And, and one of our hopes for the show was that, you know, certainly people in the public eye are so well versed in their own talking points and they have their kind of shtick that they do. And we thought, well, if, if we can put them in strange enough circumstances where they're talking for an hour to a stop motion NPR host, perhaps that will you know, take them outside of their comfort zone in a way that doesn't make them 
personally uncomfortable and they can reveal aspects of themselves that are otherwise hidden behind these kind of glossy media approved remarks. And that happened a fair amount where people would share, you know, Roxanne Gay, who writes a lot of very serious stuff, made a lot of kind of dirty jokes and was really <laughs> playful and sort of subversive in a different way than she is in her writing. And, and Ken Burns was really down to clown. And then Mike Tyson was opining on loss in this very poetic kind of poignant way that was uh, really moving. And so it was fun. Yeah. I think a core assumption of the show is that people are more than one thing. Um, and that hopefully goes for the characters. And I think the guests also demonstrate that, that your idea of a person, it lacks the dimensionality of the actual human being. Zach is just going to say, in terms of Mike Tyson, he's still one of my favorite guests over the years. Mm. And I experienced him in your series, just just as I did in my conversation, a very um, surprisingly open guy and surprisingly uh, vulnerable in conversation, particularly given his his childhood. But I, I really enjoyed that segment as I did so many of them. Zach, thank you for for being with us, talking about In the Know, what all went into the series. And uh, have you heard back from from Universal whether there's a renewal in the works? No, it's all early days, I guess, the kind of various algorithmic machines and metrics and everything take a while to do their magic. But um, I, I, I will say, like, the people at Peacock were incredibly supportive and the executives were really amazing. I mean, we I think every single joke, ha- or sorry, every single episode has like a Malcolm Gladwell joke, which is a pretty <laughs> in the weeds thing. And they were just like, yep, you can do it. They were just really supportive. So regardless of what happens in the future, I just feel lucky to have gotten to make this season and, and we'll see what happens. Thank you so much, Zach. Good to talk with you. Really appreciate it. You too. Thanks. This is really a treat. Thanks so much. Zach Woods, the co-creator, co-showrunner, and the lead voice in In the Know, the new Peacock streaming series. All six episodes are out now on Peacock. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great rest of your day. NPR's Here and Now is next. On Inheriting. To Tuan Trong, his home country is a lost country. What's keeping you from going back to Vietnam? The communists. Uh, I, 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 can't, I can't stand to see them. But his son Bao longs to live there, the very country Tuan fled. Being homesick for a, a place that's never been home. Listen to Inheriting from LAS Studios and the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts.